Welcome to Trilogy in Theory. My name is Webb, and this is my co-host, Mike. And we are talking B-sides on this episode. The films that weren't quite good enough to make our always perfect episodes and perfect trilogies. <laughs> Had we chosen these, they might not have been so perfect. So let's talk about them. Probably still would have. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I have a feeling that our perspectives might have changed just a tad <laughs> to ensure our perfection. The first one is a Western. It might be the first Western we've covered on this episode. 1993's Tombstone. You must be Doc Holliday. (coughs) That's the rumor. You retired too? Not me. I'm in my prime. Yeah, you look it. You must be Ringo. Look, darling. Johnny Ringo, the deadliest pistol there since Wild Bill, they say. What do you think, darling? Should I hate him? You don't even know him. No, that's true, but I don't know. There's just something about him. Something around the house. I don't know. Reminds me of me. No. I'm sure of it. I hate him. He's drunk. In vino veritas. Logic would agis. Creda judia sotella non ego. Eventus stultorum. Magister. In pace requiescata. Come on, boys. We don't want any trouble in here, not in any language. That's Latin, darling. Evidently, Mr. Ringo's an educated man. Now I really hate him. I had never seen Tombstone, and it's one that uh, one of my uncles said that it's, it's his favorite film. And at the time... I didn't really care about the genre, but after going back and <laughs> I thought you were going to say your uncle. The time I didn't really <laughs> care for him. <laughs> no, no, no. He's a good fella. He, he's, he's great. I did not care about the genre that much uh, when, and I was at, that was early in my journey into film. So I was really more about the established classics. Uh, even though you got The Searchers and a couple other films that always kind of show up in, in people's uh, top tens or the critics' top tens, I was not that into. I mean, the only Western I really, I think, had watched at the time was Back to the Future 3, which... Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly. But then I got into Carpenter, which led me to Howard Hawks, which led me to Rio Bravo, and I was like, "Uh uh-oh, I like this Western. Um, Johnny Guitar, I love that. Uh, You know, Nick Ray, I absolutely adore that film. Um, So, watching Tombstone... I kind of got those same vibes. I was like, oh, man, the Western. It was 1993. I don't know. what. When did Unforgiven come out? Was that around that time, too? 92. There you go. Okay. So maybe there was a little bit of a resurgence. Uh, And actually, Back to the Future was probably 1990? Like, it was towards the... Yes. Yeah, there you go. Okay, so people are kind of interested. (laughs) Let's not credit Back to the Future Part 3 for Unforgiven. (laughs) Getting the green light. (laughs) That's fair. A little, little something to do with Clint Eastwood and his history in the genre. <laughs> fair. 
So Tombstone kicks off to a pretty great start. What a wonderful cast. Oh, all those mustaches. They're great. I mean, obviously, Sam Elliott steals the show because his mustache Mm -hmm. always does. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, this might be high art. The more the film goes on, the less high art it becomes. I mean, you've got scenes with Russell screaming into the camera. Hell's coming, you hear me? You know, stuff like that. I'm like, oh, oh, this is schlock. (laughs) Weeping in the rain, his hands covered in his brother's blood. Uh, I think screaming why. Uh, Look, hey, I think the more we're talking, the more we're seeing this actually is high art. Look at all the drama on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's good, though. It's good trashy pulp. It's not quite, I guess, what I wanted out of my westerns, but that I mean, that's totally fine. Was there a scene with uh, Wyatt Earp, and he's talking about how he's only been in one shootout in his entire history? And then this film is like ends with nothing but shootouts and people high fiving about them. Like it's kind of odd to me that the character goes from zero to sixty that fast. Oh, well, you know what? I just I'm coming into this movie completely fresh. Tell me about your history with Tombstone. I've probably seen it like a hundred times. Or around, <laughs> around <that>. Awesome. <laughs> Excellent. Um, I can't say. So I I would have been you know, 11 when this came out and I didn't see it theatrically. I also didn't have any interest in Westerns necessarily. I don't think I was like a hater of them, but certainly at that time period, if you're a kid, Westerns are for old people, right? That's a thing that they, there's a movie that they used to make like, you know, musicals, uh, which man, uh, filmmakers love to get their one shot (laughs) at either a full on musical or as we, I talked about on this show, uh, Clerks 2, of all things. Kevin Smith has to get in his, like, song and dance sequence. They just have to do it at one point in their life. Spielberg. Spielberg is doing it now, right? This is his first one? West Side Side Story, Story? yeah. Remake coming up. Yep. Um, I don't know if they feel the same way about Westerns. uh, Because it seems like... So, like, just to go to Unforgiven, Clint Eastwood can go back and do, you know, deconstruction of the genre and the, the, where his, uh, bread was buttered as far as, as a performer. And we saw a little bit of that with, uh, you know, John Ford had a history of it. And so he would make films later in his career that, uh, were very much a reflection of what this, um, particular piece of entertainment means when you go a little bit deeper. <clears throat> and I think it's interesting, uh, that you're bringing up like, Hey, maybe this one will. And it's like, uh, no, no, this is the tombstone would fit very much in the heyday of Westerns where they really were the, like the, the Marvel, uh, of their, their era, as far as yes. this is where the superheroes and the gods were. And that is distilled down to perfectly, um, by Val Kilmer as doc holiday, who is just a walking superhero in this as you've mentioned this land of so you have Wyatt Earp who when people recognize him or they hear his name they're like oh god he's like he's the the ultimate law dog but even among the famous uh there is the infamous Doc Holliday who requires a certain a certain tier of respect I guess for the danger he represents uh even in at this point in his life in this film uh very much a weakened state uh, and there's just so many so many cool scenes uh, with Val Kilmer's performance here, which is probably why as someone as a kid, you know, I didn't have anything for or against Westerns. 
somehow this one stood apart where I was like, this is a fucking awesome action movie. Like I want to be Doc Holliday or just to hang out with him for a little while uh, when he's being threatened by, you know, the, the Cowboys, which is in this film is the, the, the gang with the red sashes that our heroes will entangle with uh, throughout the film. Um, and often he's talked about his physical state. He's too sickly to, you know, be the doc all he once was and, uh, or he's too drunk. And so he responds with, I have two guns, one for each of you. (laughs) It is just so cool. Everything about him is so cool. uh, I'm your Huckleberry, which that has transcended this film to become some sort of threat. It's a reference to a movie that people may have not seen, but I've, seen that line used on like sports center <laughs> like where someone says an athlete is like well you know he here's his i'm your huckleberry moment and there's so many badass things in this movie that i'm glad that it went the popcorn route um strangely like uh, much like i guess deep impact and armageddon there were two competing wide art films and i read this the, yeah the uh i guess more serious minded one is lawrence kasdan uh and kevin costner's wide Earp film that came out about six months later in the summer of 94 and i think it was almost three hours long it was the epic it was more about his life i believe dennis quaid i've never seen it because anytime i've gotten the itch of like oh i should get around that or i could just watch tombstone again (laughs) (laughs) what always wins out i've heard dennis quaid is pretty good as doc holiday but how could he be better than val kilmer here i i can't um, yeah, if you want to talk about perfection, it is, it is Val Kilmer is the ultimate sidekick to our hero, uh, just to, to come in and do the heavy lifting. You know, I try not to read too much about this. Like, uh, I was, cause I, it pretty quickly, you can stumble into that wide Earp. Um, the reason he's a legend now is because he survived and was able to write his own history. Like, and he got a lot of work consulting in the early days of Westerns, like in the twenties, like early thirties. I can't remember when he passed, but it was late twenties, early thirties. Um, basically he got in with Hollywood. And so his tale would be told for generations down the line. And oh, I think if you do yeah. a little bit more reading about him, he was like kind of your average gambler and kind of, <laughs> I don't know if he was that much different from one of the villainous cowboys here. But no matter, uh, all credit to Kurt Russell for seeding the stage to uh, Val Kilmer, to some degree, Sam Elliott. Um, I don't think Bill Paxton's given that much to. That's probably the one hang up I have as a fan of his that for a guy that is known for kind of going over the top, um, he really is just like, he's like, oh, yeah, that's the other brother. And it's yeah. like, well, you've got a guy who can go up to 11. I Like, make him a cowboy. Wouldn't he have been a great villainous cowboy one of the gang members just <laughs> screaming at Wyatt Earp? That's the only flaw in this film. That's all I'll hear about any negativity with Tombstone. So what compliments do you have to throw to this great work of art? Well, obviously Val <laughs> Kilmer. Um, I, I, I did have uh, some memory of people telling me Val Kilmer is really good in this movie and then you see it and I think the moment that did it for me and again I don't know which film scenes are iconic in this one but when he is mocking Johnny Ringo with his little cup after the show-off sequence with the guns oh my gosh <laughs> fell in love with him right there like that was it he was immortalized in that scene and everything else that comes afterward is just gravy and he gives you more. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I don't want to say that <laughs> this is the reason he got Batman because back then Batman wasn't this, you know, a uh, uh, coveted part. It actually is the reason he got Batman. Joel Schumacher saw this right. performance and said, I want him as Batman. And 
I think the wrong lessons were learned because it's like, yeah, give him, you know, clearly he was meant to be a villain in a Batman movie. Give him a bunch of showy uh, lines and moments where he can taunt someone. And <laughs> yeah. you put him as boring, stoic, stagnant, um, you know, Bruce Wayne in those films. But uh, yeah, Val Kilmer watching this, you're like, oh, it's clear he should have been a movie star unless it's like, or he's just like the best, most handsome version of a character actor. Like, because yeah. that's, he's best in small doses and best as being the scallywag to the side of the hero who has to give us all the boring, <laughs> you know, screaming to the heavens. Why, why did they kill my brothers? Like, here's what we're going to do next. He doesn't have to do any of the redlining. He just has to show up and just be cool. Just be totally cool in every scene. Uh, I think the film doesn't use Michael Rooker very well. I wish that he was a little more bombastic. No, no. Um, one th- He's the, the good cowboy, the good gang member, which yeah. is weird from Rooker. Exactly. But the one person who is not allowed to play a, a protagonist or anybody worth a damn is Powers Booth, and they lean into that villainy that he brings to the scene so well. It was so weird to see him not completely wrinkled, because I don't really associate him with a younger villain, always an older guy. And it was exciting to see him uh, not with gray hair, but he is so good. And it's like, it's unfair! It's unfair to hire him just because he's going to be fantastic as a villain anyways. So, uh, yeah, the the cast is so... Billy Bob Thornton shows up uh, right in the beginning as, like, this, uh, a scumbag coward. It's so good. Uh, embarrassment of riches in this film. Just just tr- really, really uh, uh, tremendous. And, and I bet it took no convincing. I bet people just wanted to be a part of this. That, that's what it seems like to me. Not many good female roles. I guess that's my only complaint. Although I love Dana Delaney. I'm always going to bring up comic books. She is the definitive Lois Lane from the animated series. And she's great in Desperate Housewives (laughs) as well. So I was thrilled to see her in in a live-action film because I think she is wonderfully attractive and wonderfully talented. Uh, So good. So good here. The best bit with women and Tombstone is very briefly when the Earp brothers are meeting to go make their fortune in Tombstone. I believe they're at the train station. And maybe it's Paxson who says, wow, like, you know, all of our wives, they could be sisters. And it's just like, yep, go find a pretty blonde. Like, Well, that's covered. Now I can go, you know, find gold in them, the <laughs> hills. Like the blonde is covered. We've got that taken care of. Um, yeah, that that's it's pretty thankless. Uh, you know, Earp's wife having like some sort of drug problem. Uh, it mainly just seems like a nuisance to him, and it's <laughs> it's presented as if I've got bullets flying past my head. I've got to come home to a drug addict. Like, what <laughs> can't you make my life easier? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know how. Again, like we mentioned, we don't know how historically accurate this is. Uh, ultimately, history is written by the victors. So I don't know why she needed to be in the film to begin with and to create any kind of like, a, oh, I want to be with uh, this wonderful actress, Josephine, but I can't because of my wife. I don't know why that needed to be there. Either way, it, it's not really... I can't fault the film much for not having strong female characters because ultimately it's not about the female characters in the film. The fact that they're there... God bless when movies are movies. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> right, I guess so. I I don't need a female character to be strong and and you know uh, prolific in every single film. It, it, it when especially when it doesn't call for it. Um, I love films with strong female characters, but no, I'm I, this one really uh, that that's not what its focus is, and that's all right because what its focus is is a good time in a very. Uh, romanticized setting in American history. Yes. And that's totally yes. okay. Uh, yeah, big, big thumbs up for Tombstone. Can't wait to uh, bug other people who, uh, for some reason, haven't seen it. I feel like I'm one of the few. Uh, but uh, yeah, can't wait to um, talk this one up to uh, everyone I yeah. meet. Good luck with that, buddy. Fine. Hey, <laughs> I saw this movie Tombstone. Yeah, welcome welcome <laughs> to the club. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sir, you quite misunderstand the situation. Now, I know the Dolphin doesn't have the cachet of the Plaza or the Carlisle, but we operate at 90% capacity, always. And my concern here is not for the hotel. My concern here is not for you. Frankly, selfishly, I don't want you to check into 1408 because I don't want to clean up the mess. The hotels are all about presentation and fertile creature comforts. My training is as a manager, not a coroner. Under my watch, there have been four deaths. Four. After the last one, I forbade any guests from checking into 1408 ever again. The last one was David Hyde, orthodontist, manic depressive, slit his wrist, did a little self-surgery, turned himself into a eunuch, right? Yes. So you've done your homework. I'm a professional, too. Well, grievously, in its 95-year existence, the hotel has seen seven jumpers, four overdoses, five hangings, three, three mutilations. mutilations. Two stranglings. General Manager Gerald Olin is well-versed in the hotel's tragic history, dryly reciting the docket of carnage like a bookkeeper discussing his ledger. Well, you think you're clever, don't you? I know the game. Well, during your investigation, did you discover the 22 natural deaths that have occurred in 1408? Natural deaths? Ah, didn't find out about them because the newspapers don't print anything about them. Hm. All told, there have been 56 deaths in 1408. 56? You're shitting me. You don't know anything. The causes of death in 1408 range from heart attack, stroke, drowning. Drowning? Yes, one Mr. Grady Miller drowned in his chicken soup. That's hard to do. How, how did he do that? How indeed. Interesting. It's all in here. I will let you have this and give you access to my office. You can take notes, put it all in your book. My only condition is that you do not stay in that room. The next film that could have been part of our Stuck in One Room trilogy is 1408, the horror film based on Stephen King's short story. You know, every time that I approach a John Cusack film, there's always some trepidation because he doesn't scream star quality to me for whatever reason. <laughs> the last <laughs> decade and a half of uh, Hollywood filmmaking would probably agree with you because I, I don't know <laughs> where he went. <laughs> I think so. But the thing is, every time I do watch a John Cusack film, I'm overjoyed and just like kicking myself. Like, why didn't I see this sooner? Because he is a fucking pro he brings his a game i think no matter what uh, it took me forever to watch something like say anything and i was like eh, whatever yeah the boom box uh, 
And it was a great movie. I really loved Say Anything. I got to watch it in uh, the AFI theater in Bethesda, Maryland. Like, in, in really... Oh, it was like, me and, like... Oh, yeah. It was, like, me and, like, three other individuals in this giant theater. I guess, I guess legitimately nobody cares. But I thought it was great. <laughs> he is... Yeah, he's always... It's a really sad anime. ending to a Cameron Crowe classic. <laughs> like, that was, <laughs> that was even worse than getting the pin uh, when you're being broken up with. Hey, <laughs> take this as a memory. <laughs> I I enjoyed the premise of 1408, and I think horror movies kind of have it a little easy because they can always hook you really well, but they just need a reason to kind of continue, and they need a reason to exist. I think 1408 works for a little bit, and then it kind of goes off the rails. There's a severe lack of connective tissue between the nightmarish sequences and then maybe what's happening in the real world. Uh, you've got this character study about yeah, it's again nothing uh, too original, but you've got somebody with a, quite a bit of a, a tragic past and something that obviously I not not so much related with, but fear. Of course, you know I've got a daughter, and and this character has a daughter who he lost, and the downward spiral that he goes into. So. I certainly was invested in some aspects, but there wasn't quite enough there for me. Is this this was my first time watching fourteen oh eight? What about yourself? Pretty sure I watched it theatrically, um, and I I was maybe unlike you, I was uh, hanging on uh, to John Cusack's nineteen uh, eighties stardom. And is fourteen oh eight like his last like box office hit or like modest hit? Because I'm struggling to remember another film in theaters that had him in the title role. Like I runaway does jury hot came time out. Machine? Hot tub time machine. Oh, no, you know what? Yeah, I think that does. I, I stand corrected. That probably is, even though he got, he got bumped from the sequel. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> I, I didn't even see the sequel. I, Oh no. I, I don't so know bad. what the story is behind that, but uh, apparently he got, uh, he was considered expendable yeah. <laughs> for the hot tub time machine mythos. Uh, I don't remember. I remember thinking uh, that was okay. Like, you know, was, I don't remember being, uh, uh, like most, I guess, internet reactions now, just fucking furious that they got my eight bucks <laughs> to watch 1408. I thought, fine, a, a, a lovely two hours of entertainment. Uh, I wish it had been better. And that was really my only memory of it until you suggested it for our B-sides. Uh, even though, I, and I sent you a picture, apparently I bought this at some point because I had a shrink-wrapped Blu-ray copy that has been moved around four or five times, I guess, in the time since its release. And I never once felt the need to crack it open until now. And I mostly agree with you. Like it's a, it's a cool premise. Um, maybe not one that is conducive to being feature length, uh, runtime, but I can't help but think of, there was a 2011 film called the innkeepers. Have you seen this with, um, Sarah Paxton and Pat Healy, I think, are the the two, uh, you know, the the the, the title characters, the innkeepers themselves. There you go. Okay, so Webb has a Blu-ray copy. I believe it has been watched because I believe it's opened, and uh, that's one I came late to for an, another podcast. I think I did an episode of Sober Cinema on it, and uh, when I'm watching 1408 this time, I'm like, oh. I should just watch the innkeepers instead because it's similar, right? It's people trying to debunk. Uh, and that's what John Cusack's profession is. He's a guy that makes his living off of traveling to all these supposedly haunted places, but he's like so jaded and bored. It's like, guess what? I got there. 
and nothing happened. I'm going to another place and nothing fucking happens. And that's probably why no one is showing up to his book signings anymore because it's hard to support a guy who is making his living entirely in this one field. And he seems to uh, really detest the people who would give themselves over to this belief in the supernatural or that they, you know, exist on our realm. And that's interesting, but the, it seems like the film itself is, um, not as confident in its own premise. And there's a lot of visual effects that are really absurd and kind of take me out of the, the horrific aspects, especially of the trauma that he's supposedly carrying with him that is revealed as we go along the film. Um, I don't know if I need to see like, and now the, <laughs> the hotel room, there's an ice storm and now there's a flood and it just, it just seems like they need something to put, I guess, in the trailer at the time. So it's not just a guy sitting alone uh, in this room with his loneliness and his thoughts, which would have been a more low-key, low-budget, uh, I think, uh, piece of, of horror if they had gone with some more psychological aspects as, as opposed to the visual spectacle, if you want to call this sort of uh, one-room uh, mystery. that That's absolutely what they should have done. I I felt like they you're right they need like we need something new here we need a, a, a something to happen some action not an action sequence but we need an exciting scene for this beat kind of the way like sucker punches it's just like one thing after another uh, where it's like we just need to fill some space here where this would have been a great like Twilight Zone episode uh, and I also actually think about Oculus quite a bit we talked about it a little bit off camera uh, where it's like something that is haunted like clearly in 1408 the room is haunted for some reason we don't really get the backstory because i guess it's not important you're more on the you're more focused on the character's journey and same with oculus uh, we don't know why this mirror is haunted but it is and we're focused on these characters so there is something very uh inherently interesting about 1408 uh there's a lot of good setup yeah i just don't know why it couldn't quite take advantage of its premise and also you know what i'm gonna blame sam jackson because he's so good at selling the room and the character even says it like oh well you know score one for him because he 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 got me that scene initial scene with sam jackson is so good they sell and that's what ropes you in so I, i feel like the film almost starts off too strong and then doesn't quite deliver but I don't know what it could have done for it to deliver. So I'm kind of at a loss. I will ask you, since you watched it theatrically and also the Blu-ray, the default ending now has become the quote-unquote downer ending. Do you remember the differences between your theatrical version and this one? I'm actually looking at the Wikipedia uh, entry for this. I've got the page up and... Because you had asked me before, are you going to watch the director's cut? And I look at my Blu-ray and I'm like, I don't see fucking director's cut on this. Like, <laughs> right. No. I was like, it's taken me over a decade to crack open, I guess, the theatrical version. So no, I'm not going to find that one. Uh, and apparently I did. Apparently that's, you know, that's what I watched. And I, I had no memory of the original <laughs> ending at all. <laughs> and I'm reading it now. And I don't, so like, what is the issue with the downer ending in this room in a, in a horror movie i thought that's that's their thing right I, I thought you kind of like you go back to something like uh carrie uh you have the hand rising up from the grave and you have this the, you know a survivor who is racked with guilt 
uh, in pain from what she witnessed and maybe what hand she had in it. That's a downer ending, but is it not considered a downer because it's like you get one more jump scare out of this? I mean, that's what they attempt in the director's cut ending. You you do get another jump scare with, you know, if you ever want to see, I guess, John Cusack, <laughs> a burnt up corpse ghost version, <laughs> like stalking Sam Jackson. Um, but yeah, I'm reading this original ending and it just sounds like such a nothing scene that I don't know, like he, his last manuscript of like the events of the room, like are going to be published into bestseller. Like who, who cares? Why? I don't, I don't know. The, <laughs> the, the, uh, the whims, I guess, of the screening process uh, are probably, you know, they're troublesome to me as a viewer, but I can imagine from a director's point of view, it's like, really, we we're going to go with this as an ending that someone who watched the film, I was like, nope, I have no memory of that. What? <laughs> I didn't even there know I was watching the director's cut. Right. And uh, I'm glad you mentioned Carrie because <laughs> the whole time watching this, I'm like, I wish Brian De Palma directed this. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, maybe I'm, he could have saved it. I'm assuring you that the the ghost, uh, the uh, lady that throws herself from the window uh, would have been dressed uh, probably in bright red. Uh, and the, the bosoms would have been heaving as she threw herself <laughs> to her death. Well, also that and that, that woman with the receding hairline that continues to attack her. I don't know what it is about a woman with a receding hairline, but I feel like it was fright. It frightened me every single time. If it was Brian De Palma who was directing this, it would have been a very full head of hair. <laughs> and, and oh yes, oh yeah, full everything. I like the uh, supporting cast as well. Tony Shalhoub is somebody who I often forget about. Like, do I need to go back and rewatch? No, excuse me. Do I need to go back and watch Monk? Like every time I see Tony Shalhoub and he's not in a you know, Men in Black film, I'm always like, "This is a good actor. He is good at what he does." Um, I'm and I'm glad he's there. Uh, the small roles are given quite a bit of credibility, like Sam Jackson showing up for uh, the setup and everything. So I'm glad that the film is there. It's ultimately John Cusack's show, though, because there are a lot of scenes of him alone, a lot of not exposition, but what is it? It's self narration. And that's tricky. When he's got the recorder, the the, the, the mini cassette recorder, it, it I think it's fine because he's a writer. So the dialogue is a little more uh, um, operatic, I guess. When he's explaining what he's doing, uh, when he's uh, trying to climb out of the window, go to the uh, 18 steps, there's a little too much. Like, this is me explaining what I'm doing to the audience. Like, you could act it out and, you know, show, don't tell. But but I'm getting into the nitpicky things about this film. Ultimately, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> and we could do that all day. I, I just wish there was a little something more for me to hang my hat on with 1408. Yeah, I, um, you know, I don't want to, let's not pull out the big guns as far as, uh, better uh, cinematic offerings of Stephen King's story set in uh, a hotel, uh, which could have been its own uh, trilogy if you want to double dip on the, the Shining uh, universe. But yeah, look at what Stanley Kubrick does with just uh, images of two girls holding hands at the end of a hallway. And yes, I mean, there are glimpses of their fate, of their, their bodies after they've been cut up with an axe. But fourteen and eight is just so, it's just so tryhard, and yet you feel it when you're watching it. Where it's like, well, they're they're really working overtime to get something visual on the screen. When 
and I don't know. I, I was going to ask you, do you think maybe John Cusick has just miscast in that way? Because I think some of his more iconic roles, they do tend to lean more rom-com uh, where he's sort of bantering with someone. He's got that sort of nervous uh, energy and he is a guy who's sort of made his mark in comedies of seeing him in some state of distress <laughs> and how he reacts to it. As I said, usually in a, some sort of uh, romantic relationship. So I, I think of uh, high fidelity, um, I think probably the eighties comedies, he's looking at it more as the underdog perspective. He's usually the guy like aspiring to like get the girl and is flummoxed by like how to do it here. I, him playing uh too cool for school and being so swarmy about it. Like is the film by casting him wanting us to root for bad things to happen to him. <laughs> like, I, I don't think that's the comeuppance that we should want of like, you know what? Uh, enough of Cusack's sassy mouth. Let's have a ghost come out of the wall and attack him <laughs> randomly and knock him on his keister. I don't think so. I think despite the fact that he is a bit smarmy and maybe unlikable in that first act, as soon as you hear the backstory, uh, the fact that he lost a daughter, it's instant like you want to cheer for him it, it just it just is because it's a I didn't feel a that horrible way. reality <laughs> no oh no <laughs> you monster <laughs> you monster you're no better than the room that's trying to destroy him uh one thing i gotta ask you is that extended scene of him not being in the room the the, the kind of gotcha moment did you believe it at all even in the theatrical nope. cut nope <laughs> right as soon as as soon as he wakes up uh initially on the beach uh coughing up water and having i guess the near-death experience i'm like oh i wonder how we're gonna come back to this uh because it is so uh it's such a an outlier as far as go to this room go to this hotel bitch about it bitch about it uh you know what now I might get to where really my true passion is surfing. <laughs> so, oh, okay, <laughs> that's kind of weird in this horror movie. So no, it's um, it's not subtle. Uh, I think that's a pretty fair uh, criticism. Uh, even if you dug it, I, I think it's meant to to stick out, and you're going to double back to it at some point. The trouble is, it goes on for like seven minutes or something. I'm like looking at the time. What happened is I, you know, I'm watching it on my computer. Excuse me, my eyes. As it was meant, meant to be seen. <laughs> As you're scrubbing ahead and back, how much is left? <laughs> well, I just wanted to see the time. And I accidentally saw the running time and I was like, oh, God, there's 40 minutes left. There's no way this is the end. So I knew, it me I mean, I knew that there's no way that this is, uh, he's actually out of the room. But yeah, it was just like, this is going on too long. It's obvious we're going to go back to the room. Uh, and that's, you know what, that's another reason why I feel like this wasn't a good fit for our trilogy to begin with. Just because while he is in the same room, there's a little too much of him going out of it. And then the room turning into something completely different. Uh, it's not as pure as the other films in our trilogy. Still, I think there's good stuff in it. I think that if you're looking for a, a horror film to enjoy in October and you feel like you run the gamut of all the classics, this one's totally serviceable it'll it, for horror aficionados i think it will uh give you a fine evening attention hl scale passengers the dining car is closed root beer is still available but the cost is now 650 if the passengers will look to the right you will see a sad man that is all uh let's talk about the girl on the train <laughs> 
So the girl on the train came out in 2016, and I had read the book, and the book is pretty good. It, it's it's still like kind of B level material the way Gone Girl. I think Gone Girl is kind of the more popular uh, uh, comparison to this, uh, and it was a it was an enjoyable book. And the movie just doesn't do it for me. I hate to say this because Emily Blunt is in it and she's quite good. And so is Allison Janney. Well, I don't know if Emily Blunt is good. We'll get to that. It's got like a C-level cast with C-level direction. Whereas something like Gone Girl has an A-level cast and A-level direction. Yeah, um, okay. Uh, I mean, I don't have any problem with uh, Rebecca Ferguson. I really like her. Haley Bennett, um, I think. To me, I just confuse her with Jennifer Lawrence. Like, oh, you couldn't get Jennifer Lawrence, so you got uh, whoever Haley Bennett is. I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm gonna I'm gonna interrupt you real quick before we shit on the direction. Okay. One of the things that I immediately thought about was the 2005 Oscars opening monologue that Chris Rock does, and he talks about how. Everybody wants to make their movie right away. You figure, why don't some movies work? Well, because the studios make them too fast, okay? If you can't get a star, wait. Just wait. And they like to say, oh, there's a hundred stars out tonight. No, there's not. There's only four real stars, and the rest are just popular people, okay? Like Clint Eastwood's a star. That's a star, okay? Clint Eastwood is a star, okay? All right? Toby Maguire's just a boy in tights, okay? Okay? You can't get a star. Wait. If you want Tom Cruise and all you can get is Jude Law, wait. It's not the same thing, okay? Who is Jude Law? Why is he in every movie I have seen the last four years? He's in everything. Even the movies he's not acting in. If you look at the credits, he made cupcakes or something. He's in everything. He's gay. He's straight. He's American. He's British. Next year, he's playing Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in the movie. If you can't get a star, wait. Okay? If you want Russell Crowe and all you can get is Colin Farrell, wait. Not the same thing, okay? Alexander's not Gladiator, okay? Ja Rule's not Tupac. You got that? I love Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe, to me, is one of the greatest actors in the world, okay? I think all period pieces should star Russell Crowe. Everything. If you're doing a movie about the past, you bet to get Russell's ass, okay? I don't care if you're making a movie about three weeks ago, you need to get Russell Crowe. Because Russell will do the research about three weeks ago. He'll cut his hair like three weeks ago. He will walk like three weeks ago. He will talk like three weeks ago. And you'll close your eyes and you'll listen and go, that sounded like three weeks ago. <laughs> if you can't get a star, wait, okay? If you want Denzel and all you can get is me, wait. Okay? I thought it was a brilliant, brilliant... Uh, uh analysis of kind of the, the the way studios want to rush this stuff out and i immediately thought about that because when reading the book i was like oh man chris evans would be perfect for this the, the husband the, the villain role because he's very unassuming he's already super popular because of the marvel stuff and he would people wouldn't see it coming sure enough he was in talks to star as in that oh. role 
And, of course, there were scheduling conflicts, so they got Justin Thoreau, somebody who I already dislike. <laughs> what, what is that based on, Webb? <laughs> I'm not sure, to be just completely space, honest huh? with you. <laughs> just, just, just the way I don't like looks. the cut of his jib. Well, he's in uh, Mulholland Drive, I remember. So maybe I saw him there for the first time. I was like, yeah, I just don't like that guy. And then he's done some uh, uh, script writing. I just don't like him. I don't know why. And, and Justin, if you're listening, I'm sorry, sir. I don't know what it is about you. I love to imagine that we have one celebrity listener and it's him. <laughs> <laughs> and now we, I can track. Hey, hey Webb, we, uh, we lost uh, one listener this month. I wonder if it was Justin. <laughs> that's enough <laughs> i really like what they had to say about tombstone 1408 yeah i'll give them that but then they had to name check me but i'm finally featured <laughs> <laughs> you know i feel bad i'm sure we're gonna come across a movie in our uh, choices and it'll and i'll have something positive to say about him i don't know why i just don't i he just doesn't appeal to me in any way and so uh it, that the Chris Rock monologue really, really stuck out to me when look Luke Evans. I don't have a problem with Luke Evans, but he doesn't scream a level, you know, star quality. And so, yeah, this film just felt muddled with actors who weren't quite up to the task of taking this uh, schlocky, pulpy material and kind of making it a little more than what it is. And the direction absolutely has something to do with that. How dare you taking on the uh, auteur behind the help? <laughs> you don't feel like he could. He was up to this challenge. Uh, also, get on up, which I think I saw in the movie past days, and have no memory of uh, Chadwick Boseman as James Brown. Um, pretty sure I checked into it, but also clearly checked out and was on my phone for whatever matinee showing I was uh, into. Um, look, it's a it's an easy premise to make. A uh, at least even modestly entertaining film. Mm, does it succeed? Probably not. Uh, I I think it, and I probably would have been annoyed if I'd um, like that on the even when it's presented in book form. Even though maybe it's a little bit more natural there, where our, our main character is a not so functioning alcoholic. I guess within this like very small lonesome world that she's built for herself where she's faking going to work and just riding the train back and forth every day. Like, uh, she's, uh, divorced. Um, she's creeping on her old life. Like even with new participants, uh, in that world, um, she spies on her old neighborhood, this old house, um, and then makes little plot developments for these people that she doesn't really know anymore. But, Hinging a lot of the mystery on her blackouts feels maybe it's accurate to the character, but it also just reeks of cheating left and right. Yes. When you you want to keep something from the audience. And I think in, for some reason in book form, I I find I'm probably more accepting of that. Like you can have the chapter break and go jump ahead in time. But in a movie where I'm laying eyes on Emily Blunt, go through this, I actually think she is quite good here. I just think it's a really difficult part to hinge so much of the plot on of her, her drunken mishaps. And so right before we started recording this section of this episode, I asked for two minutes of your time so I could rewatch the, the only part of the movie that really sticks out for me where she has this rant in the bathroom mirror. She's having this drunken bonding experience with a stranger talking about how this other woman, like, you know, destroyed her marriage and what she would like to do, like not necessarily to them, but to this, 
this other couple when she witnesses what she perceives to be as cheating. Like she wants to be this uh, avenging angel of anyone that's having an affair. She wants to come in and right these wrongs by <laughs> grabbing this woman by her blonde hair and just smashing her face. If that had gone further, <laughs> where, where you had deviated from the book, and it's like maybe she's actually contemplating like <laughs> becoming physically involved. I think as a trashy thriller, I kind of would have been into it, but instead that's just one blip to maybe throw a curved audience. Like, is she capable of this? But the film doesn't commit to the idea that she's ever capable of actually doing physical harm. So it's just, it's a rant that I think in novel form is meant to maybe be perceived as, Oh, is she the threat? Is she the one that's like involved in this woman's disappearance? I never buy it in the movie. I don't know if it's because it's Emily Blunt. And as you said, she's the only movie star here. So I'm like, well, no, it's not her. It's one of these other chuckleheads. That I can't get their names right. Like <laughs> it's, you know, it's C-list Jennifer Lawrence or whoever. I don't even know what Justin throw. I don't know. Is he C-list Tom Cruise? Like what is, what he be? <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> but, and I've seen this a few times and every time I think I liked it more when I watched it, like, cause I watched it theatrically. I think I watched it once again on video with my wife. We're like, uh, and we both said, yeah, that wasn't that good. Was it? I don't know. Like, yeah, Emily Blunt's really good. Well, let's just throw it on. And then we came out of it like, God damn it. And thankfully for that reason, uh, for this podcast, I only already owned a digital copy of it for that one mistake. So what did I do? <laughs> I make the mistake a third time for this podcast. And I swear to you, Webb and dear listeners, this is the final time. This is the final <laughs> mistake with the girl on the train. I'm glad that you mentioned uh, this scene because this was the exact scene where I was watching. I was like, you know, I don't know if she's doing a good job because she's on the borderline of committing to it so much that it's almost hamming it up a little bit. And that's when I was like, you know what? And I'm, again, once again, I'm, I'm taking advantage of my iPad Pro and watching it on a glorious screen. And then it occurs to me, I was like, you know what? I really should get the laundry done. <laughs> I exit the room. I don't pause. I exit the room. You still got the AirPods the in, I assume, right? You can still hear it or no. Or you just walk away from it entirely. <laughs> I walk away from it entirely. I do my laundry. I come back up. And I'm like, I'm like, is it, is it almost done yet? <laughs> Wait, are I don't you talking know about this, this, this bathroom scene? No, I'm talking about, like, talking the, about movie. the movie. Like, where are we? Because I thought like, we were on two different wavelengths where it's like, I insist I've got to rewatch this bathroom scene. And you're like, that's the scene I went to go check on the towels. And then came back <laughs> and see what's over. <laughs> no, but what happened, I came back up and I was like, yeah, the movie's still going. I guess I could fold the laundry. <laughs> and I went and folded the laundry. And so it's like, yeah, it's just a film that should be engrossing and engaging. And it's not. Uh, and and. It might be that they're stretching the premise, but you're right. This cheating thing, I, I 110% agree because I've not I've the extramarital affairs, the black. No, ones, the, the, no. Okay, yeah. the, the cinematic cheating that we have here. And I'm glad that you mentioned it because when you mentioned it for B sides, I was like, what trilogy is this going to fit into? And I was, it, it would fit into our flawless Rashomon trilogy. And it wouldn't at all because you're right. The perspective stuff is all a cheat, complete cheat, uh, because you're right. The person, the our protagonist is it's completely out of her control. So she is not trying to deceive somebody within the film. We're all being deceived. She's being deceived. The viewer is being deceived. 
not a fan of this. So I completely agree. Uh, there's just the jumping back in time. You're right. In a book works perfectly in a film. It's just confusing. It's just confusing. Um, the, uh, the crutch on the alcoholism. Is it a character study? I I don't know. Because Gone Girl is not really a character study. That's all thrills. And I hate to keep comparing it. But, you know, you, gotta, you, gotta, you see a film that's doing something right with trashy material and, something that's, and a film that's doing something wrong with it. And once again, I was like, why didn't Brian De Palma direct this? Even like Gone the... Girl, you know, for I think it's like a, a perfect film um yeah and of, of the last you know of the 2010s it would be it would probably be uh in my my top 10 because i've gone back to it so many times and there's so much dark humor to it and like as far as the he said she said aspect of it at different points in my life or maybe different points in the film i'm like that's right ben affleck you are being screwed over or 20 minutes later i'm like <laughs> you know what ben affleck what a jerk i hope, <laughs> I hope nothing but bad things happen to him um but you bring up a good point about it that it really it really did um inflict a lot of cinematic damage or even i guess if you're a book lover probably far more books that were attempting to be gone girl. Uh, the girl on the train, we did one on my other show with Dave uh, off screen death, which you came on for, for the woman in the window on Netflix, which is same thing. It's an unreliable narrator. That is a uh, female protagonist who has some sort of substance abuse issues. I think in both cases, drinking too much and they're voyeurs. Uh, they are just spying on. And it's like, good God, like how many of these, how much of this? And, and, and also, they're not speedy with trying to cash in on the Gone Girls. You remember, like, like Jaws. I'm sure in the heydays of the 70s, there was some, like, Roger Corman, like, shark movie, like, that came out six months later. They're like, you know what? Film it. Get it out there. And if you're in a mood for shark movies that year, you're going to go through that phase with the people trying to, like, collect, you know, your, your theater-going dollars. This is 2016. So two years after Gone Girl, I'll give them this. <laughs> 2021, we get Amy Adams in the one in the window. It's like, Jesus Christ, it's almost been a decade since Gone Girl. Like, <laughs> struck while the iron is hot. What are you doing? Um, but it's uh, it's unfortunate because I, I think both of us are probably fans of Emily Blunt and Amy Adams. Like, I, I don't think either one of us are going to have a hot take saying, like, ter- you know, they're terrible actors. I like, don't see how they get gigs. Uh, but they definitely are being drawn into what should be. And, you know, you keep going back to De Palma, which I, as often as we will, I promise you, dear listener, we will we will probably have some De Palma-themed month or B-sides coming up because now Webb is, the hooks are in <laughs> for, for, like, yeah. fun at the movies. And you're absolutely right. What is with the heavy-handed seriousness that they are taking these? Because like, they don't really care that much about, um, in, in both of these latter examples, uh, alcoholism, uh, the, the trauma, uh, the gaslighting that a woman's gone through. It, all of it is just meant as a plot device. They don't really want to get into the weeds on the mental state of Emily Blunt's character or Amy Adams and the, and the woman in the window. So just fucking, just throw it out, throw it out. Let's just have fun. Let's just play. Let's just, and that's, I think the lesson that they didn't learn from Cone Girl is that, uh, Rosamund Pike, uh, she's having a blast not only in the plot, playing with Ben Affleck's psyche, but playing with the audience as well. There's a lot of fun to be had in that film. And never does David Fincher stop and say, okay, let's have a moment where we really try to understand, you know, why she is the way she is. No, 
not unnecessary. Like we, we get it. We get the rich parents, we get the books, uh, we get Ben Affleck, you know, the way he enters that relationship as someone as, uh, that is a, a partner that can take on the people that have slided her up to that point in her life. Uh, until you have to actually live with Ben Affleck and all he wants to do is have sex and go to Texas Roadhouse for dinner. <laughs> like, <laughs> <it's> just... <laughs> yep. He scratches nuts and eat wings on the couch <laughs> with his new MacBook in front of him. God, that movie's so good. So good. I'm, I'm thinking about it now, like, and I, I had to catch myself. I'm like, what are Webb and I talking about? Oh, I look at my tab. The Girl on the Train. Yes, that's what yeah. we're talking about. <laughs> I, yeah, this is absolutely like an asylum film version of something that is just much better. And you know what? The girl in the window or whatever, the woman in the window, like that, I completely forgot that I even recorded on it because that's how forget. That's There's how much documented PTSD. evidence of Webb <laughs> talking about that film for at least five minutes before he punched himself out and wanted to talk about comic books again. <laughs> Yeah. So ultimately, I'm glad that we absolutely did not uh, pick the girl on the train. And I absolutely am going to put it right there in that category of the, the, the select films that I have on iTunes that I will now hide from my library. Ooh, the, the so ultimate put down. That's the ultimate thumbs down for that. Um, I think I've only done that with... Uh... With Roll Bounce, which I think stars like Lil Bow Wow or something, which came with a, uh, what did it come with? It was like, hey, you're an Amazon Prime subscriber. Here are five free movies for the year. And boy, were they absurd movies that they, I guess, had licenses for. And that's when I'm like, come on, man. Like, cause I know that, you know, this is pre-pandemic times, but if I did have someone over saying like, hey, pick out a movie. I've got a thousand of them on my Apple TV. If they happen to make their way down the R's and they see Roll Bounce, then I have to have this conversation over and over. Just like you. You just immediately, <laughs> like we're on the high school playground, you immediately start like pointing your finger in my face and laughing at me because I have that. So I'm like, no, I didn't buy it. Okay, Amazon gave it to me for free. I don't know why. You know what? Just fuck it. Hide it. Hide it from my library. <laughs> <laughs>